Tēnā tātou katsua e whakarongo mai nā ki tēnei hōtaka. This is Kōpapa Kōrangi, Apple Down, conversations about how we think about the costs of climate change. Ko Māni Dunlop tēnei he uri tēnei no Ngāpuhi Nui Tonu, and I will be guiding this set of four podcasts. With climate change, especially of late, we've seen the impacts of parafinua mea in our communities, specifically in te tai rāwhiti, te tai tokero, and te matawa Māui. As we begin this podcast series, we think of those who have passed because of these disasters and because of other climate-related disasters around the world. Kia rato, haere, haere, hariatura. And to bring us back to te hunga ora, the living. What these events have also raised are questions about what it will take to protect our communities, and especially our hapori Māori, from the impacts of climate change in the future. Unfortunately, climate change adaptation is often reduced to a question of money. Why did we let development happen in a risky area in the first place? How much would it cost to protect communities in place now versus thinking in a longer-term way about where communities might feel and be safest? But what happens when the most important things to us don't have a price tag? How do we make sure the things we value most, our connections to our whenua and our tipuna, are properly factored into the decisions of governments and businesses? We're launching this project, Kōpapa Kōrangi, to get underneath some of these questions. How do we adapt? How do we talk about what we need to do moving forward for our mukupuna and for future generations? For our first episode, we have Ruia Apirahama, the Pautikanga of the Deep South Challenge, and Kaiwaiata Rongonui, whose real waiata can be heard in this podcast, and Alexandra Keeble, part of the Deep South Challenge team, putting this event together. Ruia, I'm just going to throw the rako to you, my friend, um, and get you to introduce yourself and your role as part of the Deep South Challenge. Ai, tēnā hoki koe, tēnā tau e māni, e mihi ake ana ki a tātou te kalango te wātaku ingoa ko Ruia Apirahama. My name's Ruia, and I hail from Ngāti Kuri, Teu Pauri, Pohutiare, Ngāti Whātua, Te Tāki Taku Pāpā, Te Wānganoki Taku Māmā, Norotomai o Ngāti Tuwharetoa, Ngāti Pikiā Huaiwai, Ngāti Turangi Tukua. And I was also raised in Ratanapā, a pan-tribal community, well-versed in Tiriti o Waitangi. So I'm just privileged to be here. Thank you, Emani. Tēnā koe. Kia koe ao. O kia māni, tēnā koe hoki ki a koe ruia. Uh, ko Alexandra Keeble, tōku ingoa, no Ahitradia, ahau. I grew up in Australia. I moved to New Zealand about 15 years ago. And I'm here in my role as part of the engagement team of the Deep South Challenge. And our work in the challenge is to support communities to adapt to climate change and to manage the risks that are coming with climate change. This is the first podcast of this series that are kind of preparing us for the symposium that we will have in May. Yeah, this is uh, a symposium about reframing the conversation about the costs of climate change. So, you know, we're all probably getting used to hearing um, reports on the news, on the radio about how much this disaster is costing or how much you know, that flood's costing or how much it might cost to build a seawall or how much it might cost to um, replace infrastructure. But um, one of the things we're noticing is that with so much emphasis on the fiscal costs of adapting to climate change or not adapting, we're losing so much else at the sides of that conversation. Uh, so we thought about putting together an event that could deepen the conversation around the costs of climate change. 
Ruya, you have your own hononga to this kaupapa, your, your personal experience of the floods in Tamaki Makoto, where your whare unfortunately actually flooded. Can you tell us about your experience? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Our son, that evening when it was flooding, um, our, our son, our younger son was below in the room and he started hearing trickling. Next minute the bed started moving and shifting. The next minute he's jumping up wondering what's going on and he's running and he's ringing his mum and he's ringing me. Hey, hey. Then when we went down, it was like a river going through the bottom floor. So we lost a lot of the stuff below. Materialistic things can be replaced over time. What showed to me was the value of relationships and that the welfare and the care of those that we hold dearly is important, most important. And that as long as we keep talking together, communicating together, reassuring one another, we can get through it. Ranginui and Papatunuku, yeah, they have emotions too, just like you humans. They have emotions and they have a right to express it. That puts me in a space of humility. What did it show you in this experience? Life is precious. Life is valuable. Don't take things for granted. Thank you. What 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 happens now? We become solution focused. These four podcasts are leading up to an upcoming conference on reframing the costs of climate change. While you were all discussing what the event could or should be, Yuruya reframed the name of the event itself. Could you tell us about how you landed on this name, Kopapa Korangi? When I thought about what is the economic impact and how do we respond, as particularly as Indigenous people, if we have a look nationally and globally, it's Indigenous peoples that are the ones who are the most vulnerable. So with that in mind and with the invitation to think about what are the economic models and how can we reframe and restructure, what came to me was that We've been conditioned in our education system and the way we, how we retell our stories about Itzirangi and Papa. And what I posed was the question, when all the brothers and the whanau all got together and they decided to separate their parents, Tafiri Mate had an idea, Tangaroa had an idea, and eventually it was Tane Mahuta who put his head to the ground and in that, he put his heart close to Papa, which told me that his connection to Papa Tuanuku was more, well, I wouldn't say more valuable, but there was an energy and there was a, 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 a sense of stronger connection. Then he put his feet to his father in separating. And I pose that perhaps we may see in the Western world, Western framework, that we look at climate change and we only focus on Ranginui instead of our relationship with Papa Tuanuku. And I've seen a lot of focus in terms of climate change in the science world and the academic world. There's a huge focus on what's happening up there, which is fine. But for me and my understanding, even in relation to economic view, you know, worldview, if we go back to those roots of Tane, he's actually showing us that no, this is the right way up. Our brain and our heart close to Papa Tuanuku, when we are reconnected, because that's what colonization has done, it severed that relationship. And in that, from the roots and the pakiaka through the trunk into the branches and the tree, Taranginui, that's the connection that we as indigenous peoples are trying to reclaim. Yeah. Mm-mm. And we even see that in 
the the etymology of our you know our oral histories look at like looking at the kupu pūrako for instance you know right. if you could just explain you know what that you know you're speaking of a pūrako we don't call them myths we don't call them legends mm. because they are our reality that is what happened mm. That's, these are our ancestors and we can link back to them so there is all these kind of Easter eggs Mickey if you will of 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 understanding our inherent connection to the whenua. It's interesting that you use the word pūrako. Te pū, ko te pū, and it gives us focus, and the rako is the tree. And for our people, we've always used symbolism. Let me put it this way. Intellectual and academic people can take something simple and make it very complex. Where in our people, in terms of when we see from a, from a, a, a worldview of Mātauranga Māori, we can take something very complex and bring it into a pūrako. Speaking of the, oh, you know, of our of our oral histories, um, when you talked about, you know, the one that we commonly know, Papa and Angi and, and the brothers, I think oh, what often has been kind of missed out in that in that narrative is the role of wahine. Mm. Um, for instance, hine pūtehue, mm. and the wind in which she took from, you know, the anger of Tafiri Matia and hue is the gorge, and so hine pūtehue is the goddess of our gods, but also arguably, and correct me if I'm wrong, also a deity or a goddess of, of peace as well. So she had the ability of bringing in the wind and the anger of Tafiri Matia that he had of his brother Tani and making that into peace. So even in that small story, we're also seeing how we can, as Māori and Indigenous communities, provide our own solutions that's entrenched in our oral histories. Oh, I love that because the paradigm of capitalism and neoliberalism is very much entrenched not only in Christian thinking and the separation because in Christian thinking they they talk about domination or dominion over things, right? So when they explore that, they think that ranginui, papa, tūnuku and all the earth's resources is something to have dominion over. But in our corridor and coming back to the balance of kawa, of mana wahine, mana tāne, and the male and female element, you go on to a marae, we can't exist without the, the coexisting of those two modi. And the Western world is either forgotten or they're still slow in catching up on that. The balance between the two doesn't exist. You know, it's either dominate, control, push, force, pull. But coming back for us, and I'm not, I'm not denying or diminishing that element because that's the male element in our life. Coming back to your korero about hine putehue, the calming element, hine moana, the calming element, hine marama, the calming element. Then we come back to all of the whakaheke, papa to hine nui te po. So one of the things I think that is missing in terms of economic growth, economic perspective is one balance between male and female. Māori, and the other is about humility. When we connect to those elements and we connect to both, because I believe te ira tāne, te ira wahine, that until we make peace inside ourselves and how we express that and now, particularly with the renaissance of reo, tikanga, kawa, Māori, growth, development, you know, I'm hoping too that, you know, as I see the growth of uh, iwi runangas, in particular, and corporates, I am hoping that we don't lose 
that element of who we are. But I, there's something that tells me that there's a generation coming that's not going to let us forget. Mm, Ada, I think you might be right about that. So with that in mind and thinking about your experience in the floods and also your mahi in the Deep South Challenge, what are some key climate issues for you? There's two things. What has shown to me is that there is not enough being done, that we are actually way behind in a lot of ways. And the scientists are always telling us, you know, that the islands in the Pacific are going to be under the water in the next, you know, few years. So the water's starting to rise. So you hear that. But the other contrasting thing is, is that, as I just mentioned before, using that personal experience is reframing it and seeing in the space of Deep South Challenge is that it's not what I've lost. It's not what we don't have. It's what we do have. How can we create more conversations for like-minded people to sit around and to contribute to that conversation, which is why I believe the conference that's coming up on the 19th of May is one of many steps or actions for us to create that conversation. So what has it helped me to do? Contrast. Contrasting things is really useful, I agree. My experience reporting up on the coast following the cyclone was both about the optimism of the local people there, the resilience, but also the stoicism around not expecting actual help. Some communities didn't receive help for days afterwards, and as media, we covered this, but I wonder if people are becoming desensitised. Al, in your mahi, in terms of engagement, if it's not hitting people in their own community, if it's not right in front of their faces, do they even want to touch it? I do think that you know, Rangi and Papa themselves are the best communicators of climate change. So there's only so much we can do as creatives, as communicators, as policy makers to create a picture of future climate change if you haven't experienced it yourself. It's it's asking someone to step out of their current reality and imagine what it might be like to live on the coast or to live, you know, in other parts of the world, including the Pacific, where climate is very much part of day-to-day life. It's no longer something that happens in the future. So I think that's on us, is to work out cool, new... No, not not cool, new, is to work out old and tried ways of communicating about change and about risk and about safety and about what matters um, in ways that really connect with people. And I wonder whether if we were to step back and look at some of the thinking behind some of our economic decisions, what we might find there. I'm, you know, someone that sort of sits between the overwhelming picture of what's coming for us and the when I look at what's happening day to day, I can't see the urgency or the reality reflected in our decisions. And I think, what is that about? It's a cognitive dissonance that we're experiencing. We sort of agree with each other that things are changing really quickly, but we um, aren't brave enough or we aren't um, clear-sighted enough. Or what is it? Why aren't we able to make decisions that um, better protect our whole community? That's our job, Mm. is to protect each other. So the Deep South Challenge is trying to find ways to do that, right? To protect the community. Can you tell me a bit more about your kaupapa? Yeah, so really, really quickly, the Deep South Challenge is a research platform. It's looking at the challenge of adapting to climate change, the climate change that's already locked in, um, and the climate change that will get worse if we don't reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It ranges from very kind of quote-unquote pure science, you know, 
climate physics, looking at um, clouds in the Southern Ocean, looking at sea ice and what they tell us about how fast our climate is changing through to, you know, macro impacts, like what's going to happen um, to the national economy, what's going to happen to local or regional economies, how do we make decisions when we don't exactly know what's going to come when, we don't exactly know um, how fast, you know, we're going to warm up or how bad the storms are going to get. So how do we make good decisions in the face of uncertainty? There's a whole lot of work around how to do engagement on climate change better. So how to work with communities to make sure that communities are the ones that have agency over their futures. I don't know, Rui, if you'd like to kind of pick a couple of specific projects? Yeah, yeah. When we spoke with uh, a lot of our research teams, the whānau hapu and iwi, the word climate change is foreign. It's still foreign to them. But you speak to them about the relationship of whānau hapu and iwi to their river, whānau and hapu and iwi to their māra, whānau hapu and iwi to their maunga, they are more likely to uh, resonate with that and in the connection of tātai and whakapapa back to that. But talk to them about climate change some way over their heads or it's not even in their peripheral. Why? Because many of our whānau are still recovering from the impacts of colonisation and still trying to bring balance back to social, political housing, education, work opportunities and employment. Now, when you're still in survival mode, it's a luxury for many people to start having the conversation about the environment and how that impacts wealth creation. I get that, but I also empathise that. We need to reframe our conversations, particularly when we're talking to our own communities. For scientists... Love them as much as I do, scientists, but the communication between the science and particularly Western science to indigenous peoples and in our communities of whānau, hapu and iwi, we're still going through in the Deep South Challenge in the Kōmata o te tonga, what that looks like. What, how do we describe that? How do we not only paint a picture for our people? Until you go through a personal, a real-life experience of the impact of it, it's not going to be on your radar. Our infrastructures that we have in place need to be reviewed. Our infrastructures in place will do well to have a lot more engagement with Mātauranga Māori in that space. Right, so we're talking about the importance of language and, and ways of knowing and the resurgence of all of this Mātauranga and kōrero tukuiho, including around what could have done to prevent where we are now. How do we ensure that taiwiwi or, or non-Māori think about this, especially those with economic levers at their fingertips? How do we keep that momentum going of listening to our Indigenous leaders, our Māori leaders, when it comes to preparing for climate change? Al? I don't know if this is directly answering the question and I, I think what Ruya has just sort of put on the table is a really important challenge in a way and actually really gets to the heart of what we're trying to do with this rolling event and that's invite every single person who's listening or participating in the symposium to stop for a moment, to pause and to reflect on what's motivating them and what's driving them and what their end goal is because we know that um, we're operating in a very um, fast-moving context. Whether events are happening with more and more severity and more often, I think we really need to consider what the end goal of our economic decisions are, of our business decisions, of our policy and legislative plans and 
I think that the dominant system, which is a Western economic system, has to pause and consider whether we have the the knowledge and the skills to make these decisions without Indigenous wisdom driving those decisions. There are ways we could be making decisions differently now. We need to have the courage to, to pause and consider what's driving us. Mm. One of the things that you outlined at the beginning was around, you know, the, the definition of cost and what that looks like. When you think of costs in Te Ao Māori, you think of well, utu. Ruya, can you just explain to us the concept of utu? Because it has been colonised in the way, in its usage over many years. <laughs> but now obviously we're reclaiming what that actually means. So if you can just give, give us some context around what that actually means. You know, if I can just take us back just quickly to the time of COVID and where the economy and the way we moved about came almost to a, a screeching halt. And just at that moment and at that time, without our activeness and activity in life, Papa Tuanuku and Rangi took over and started to bring rebalance again because we stepped back. Now, an utu is about balance. For many of our people, having grown up through being Christianized and also through colonization and our reinterpretation through Western, uh, like Percy Smith and Alsden and all of them who have given a, you know, a slanted perspective mm-hmm. on what utu is, you know, once upon a time the word utu was very much surrounded, it was almost like it's a bad word. It's like almost, revenge, yeah, like yeah, revenge yeah. and like makutu mm. and all that that type of energy word, you see. But we've we we we've evolved, and we can see if we go into the words, and not just the words, but the karakia that's associated with those words of utu. Utu is reciprocity. In other words, if I take something from you, I have to give something back of equal value, if not more. And when we engage in terms of relationships, there's always the how or the the energy or the modi or our power or our influence, our intentions. When we knew how to move those type of things in our lives through karakia, that acknowledge and recognize that if there was a reciprocity to take place here, I must honor it by, obli- by obligation. And this is the obligation that can go on beyond me now that can go on to my children and my grandchildren. Now, this puts us in a good space because we're talking about succession and that we're not taking from our ancestors, we're actually borrowing from the future generations. So our obligation back to Utu is that we have to keep giving back. Now, in in terms of uh, business, in terms of creating wealth, in terms of capitalism, we do a lot of taking in terms of natural resources. If we have a look at the fisheries, how much do they give back to Tangaroa? Very little. How much in the forestry do they give back to the whenua? Very little. How much do the dairy companies give back to the whenua? Very little. You know, through our own inability to accept personal responsibility, we create our own problems. And that goes for industries and economic models. Yeah. When we think of reciprocity though in the context of and you know yourself having been directly impacted by the floods for example and I also think of you know Tangwai or Marae in, in Te Matawa Maui and how they're facing the reality of having to bowl down their marae. What, what does reciprocity look like when where these communities are 
they haven't done anything wrong, right? Literally, our whenua's already been taken from us, <laughs> so it's been taken from us again on a very smaller scale. So where do you even start? I love that question. We have survived, we are alive, and it ain't finished yet. In terms of Indigenous people, the impact of colonisation going back, and we're still going through it, and climate change is also part of that, uh, you know, that unrelenting um, wheel of colonisation. So for us, not just as iwi Māori, but as Indigenous people, we have no control over humanity's behaviour nor do we have any influence over corporates. What we do have control over is our cultural, spiritual, community uh, resilience. And when we learn from all of our experiences, again, touching on our pūrāko, there's many in our pūrāko that tells us we've been here before. And then the new pūrāko we're creating today, like in Tangoyo or in the, in the Tairawhiti or back in the north, far north of my people. We can either be paralysed in that experience and event and be dependent on others to kind of, don't get me wrong, Mm, 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 insurance companies and all of that, they still (laughs) need to play a role. Yeah, of course. But shifting from that space of resilience, our people have practised resilience for years and years and years and years. That's why we're still here as Indigenous people and we will still be here beyond. The other point that I can see and reflect on is that in rebuilding and with our communities, like in the North and the other 15 research teams that the Deep South Challenge are working with, many of them are having to face the reality and the real choice that we may need to relocate. One of the interesting quarters we heard from one of the research teams is that if we relocate from here to here, what do we do to put in place to protect that whenua that's just been compromised and so that there's no further colonisation and land loss while we go to some other place? And, you know, so these are some of the questions that our people are having to explore and work through. Now, we've always been resilient, yeah. And adaptable, right? Exactly. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Alistair, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just I, I think, Mani, you said you know, Tangoyo hasn't done anything wrong. It's kind of opening our eyes to what's happened in history and what's happening now so that those who don't know the history of Tangoyo or, or don't know, um, you know, a Māori history of New Zealand have an opportunity to understand why it is that many Māori communities are situated on vulnerable whenua in swampland next to Awa um, on in the lowland. What were the decisions of the governments and the civil servants and the um, business people of the day that created that reality? And are we certain that we're doing things differently now? And I think part of it is having that humility that you talked about, Ruya, to acknowledge that there's so much we don't know about how some of us have generated so much wealth and how that presents a challenge now in the face of climate change. It's like in some ways those that have are winning again under climate change. Where you know, wealthier communities tend to be communities that can build seawalls, for example, or, you know, can self-organise to protect themselves. So the question for me is if we look back, if we open our eyes to the Atua and to Matauranga, what do we have as as non Māori, as Manuhiri, have to gain and I think the, the answer is like 
innumerable things. We we can't even imagine. We don't know the solutions, and we shouldn't pretend that we mm. we have them. People still don't know. People don't know the history of how our communities are where they are and why they're there and why Māori always bear the brunt of the, you know, the worst of it. But then because Māori are always the most resilient, as we've talked about and established, <laughs> and going up, I was up the coast after the cyclone and, and seeing, you know, they're just so... Um, so resilient, so tolerant, and just keep going. But it's also the marae who are the ones feeding everyone, not just them, not just Māori. Mm. They're feeding everybody because we're equipped. We have the infrastructure to respond, but yet they haven't been adequately resourced, more so now than they ever were, but not still not enough. So again, just another lived example of how we have the have the solutions, but also how history is just um, repeating itself. Though it feels weird. Yeah, yeah, because our people don't wait around for uh, regional councils, for government departments or anyone else. Our people, through practice of resilience, have learned to mobilise and just move and get things done. And even though they may not even have the resources, our people are very resourceful and they will find a way. And it's not about us convincing the naysayers and those people who want to turn this into a political or racial football game. I'm not interested in that audience. Well, who I am interested in is those who have learned over just in these recent years, say, those who are open to sharing experience as as sons and daughters of this country if I want to put it this way and in that identity as being sons and daughters of the country I'm more interested in speaking to those who are excited innovative and are looking for creative uh, imaginative ways of being solution focused nothing will move us in progress beyond those who want to sit in the space of criticism moaning judging comparing etc that goes for all of us it doesn't matter that's a human trait who I am interested in and those who have the courage and the heart and the vision who can see as sons and daughters of this country, hey, Mātauranga Māori actually has some value to offer to us. It's not a Māori thing. It's actually something that's reconnecting myself and this country. It's a spiritual connection. Now, I don't want to go to wooey wooey land, but there, there's a kind of like a deeper sense of identity of New Zealand that's starting to come up now. I see that there is a more openness to valuing the sharing of power, once of a better word, the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of experience. And while being careful about what that looks like in a space that's still volatile amongst our people and against our people, but I am very excited about a new generation of New Zealanders who are coming through who are not threatened by Mātauranga Māori anymore who are not threatened by our history. In fact, they're being responsible and they're actually embracing it. And in that, I can see the conversation more and more about co-governance and co-sharing. You see, you asked the question earlier, what were some of the things that maybe we may should have done that may have prevented this? One of those was that regional councils should have had co-governance models going back over 50, 80 years ago. I believe that if you had co-governance models at the regional councils, at city councils over 100 years ago, we would not be in this position today. In fact, our councils would be much stronger and a much stronger position in the relationships of water, water management, water quality, and also how we design 
business and how we occupy land. You see, because of our people, we go and we, we, we look at the Modi of a Fenua first before we actually say, oh, okay, and then we go through the Whakawaira and the Whakawatea, you know, which is the clearing of it because we know that there is intention on that land and how that energy in that land can be focused to bring wealth. And I just want to finish by saying this, wealth creation is not evil, in my opinion. And that our history shows that we were uh, very entrepreneurial people. And we still have that spirit. And we can become very powerful entrepreneurial people when we are grounded in these things that we've just touched about while creating wealth that, that doesn't rob life from life. <laughs> Which is why the reciprocity again. I remember growing up in the far north with my mum and dad and my, my dad. Every time they went to Rawakomatus and Kuyas, Every time they were fished, they always gave something back. Always. When you talked about the, um, you know, like, oh, I'm getting a bit so, you know, up in the rangitu hahas that people won't necessarily follow. And my question around that, well, not question, maybe a statement from my end, is that when you talk about this mātauranga, you talk about kōrero they can't make the link. If they don't have a connection, they can't make the link to something tangible that they can grab or practical. Even if you go up north, you know, talking to um, Uncle Rao, Aririata mm. Makiha, Tohunga from the north, he was he was having a moan to me the other day because he goes, they're trying to do all this riparian planting, but they haven't asked us what plants they should be planting. And mm. they were planting all of these plants that have never ever grown there, they're not going to help because they didn't listen mm. or they didn't ask the mana of go, oh, what usually is here? Or mm. like, well, we don't plant that, that's yeah. Momo timer, that's just going to get eaten by, you know, that mm. fish or whatever. So even though we have this spiritual element, we're quite practical people because we've had to survive on this whenua for, for, you know, for forever, for generations. Mm. So do you think people lose sight of that? They lose sight of we have this very heavy spiritual side of us that we have these connections to our ancestors, we have a connection to our whenua while also protecting it in very practical ways. I really love that example. And that, that demonstrates to us for a long time our people and our resilience have been trying to put a circle inside a square in terms of regional science platforms, institutions, government. The challenge now today and with the symposium that we're about to happen is that are you ready to adapt your system? It's not us that needs to adapt. It's your model that needs to adapt. But, you know, one of the other exciting things is that I believe that there are scientists. I believe there are economists in this world. I believe there are philanthropists. I believe there are creative people who can see the reality that if we don't change our paradigm and we don't change our models of thinking and our models of, when I say spirituality, I'm also talking about science and the economy, is that if we don't reframe the way we see things, that we will be condemned to repeat history again, over and over again. So what the exciting thing is that I can see that there is a, a willingness and if it takes crisis and if it takes these lessons for us to show to us that, yeah, do you have the courage to open up and adapt? The Western model needs to adapt, not us. In my personal opinion, and our matua rere at the makiha, you know, I just love it that, you know, it's something as simple of that out that tree over there is the kind of goggles that fish is going to eat it. Or not eat it, or, or not you know, eat it. like, yeah, 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 that's yeah. the issue. Um, yeah, so. That's the challenge. That's the challenge at this symposium that we're going to be putting, well, I hope that comes out of. 
are you ready? Hey, 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 Alexis. I really think that that's it. And I think one, one I heard something the other day that really st- stuck with me. And it, well, we were talking about the appetite of some scientists to communicate their research, especially when perhaps the research is uncertain and maybe it's telling us a bad news story. So, you know, do we use the worst case scenario in our planning or do we hope for the best that we're going to change our behaviour and go with a, a middle scenario? And it was put to me that if we decide to go with that middle scenario, that tells us that we have a really high appetite for risk because we're pretending to ourselves that this extreme thing may not happen, knowing that there's a potential for that event to happen. And I think if we were to look at history and make decisions based on history, um, how would other leaders be judged for making a risky decision Mm, that mm. puts people at risk, that puts Kai at risk, uh, that puts nature at risk. So what you're talking about, Ruya, is so accurate. We need to really embrace the idea that our framing is not working. We're going for a a high community risk, low personal risk model. We don't want to make decisions that put ourselves on the line, put our reputation, our job, our, our science... Our, our business strategy on the line, but we don't have to look too far into the future, 100 years, 300 years into the future, to imagine that the decisions we're making now won't stand up. We have to really look back, I reckon. Well, on that note, I think that's a perfect place to end our kōrero. Naitimihi ki our kōrua, kua whaiwahi mai wanganui ia tātou i te rā nei. I tēnei whakawhiti kōrero, whakawhiti whakaaro e rā mea. So thank you so much to you both, to you Ruia, um, for your generosity and sharing your knowledge and your pūrāko. Um, kia koe hoki, Alex, and this kōrero I've been calling her Al, that's what I call her, so aroha mai, but Al, Alex, um, thank you so much for bringing um, your whakaaro into this space as well. Nei kia in the next episode of Kōpapa Korangi, we'll be looking back to look forward, looking at what happened prior to the arrival of British settlers in terms of trade and what happened after in terms of wealth transfer. If you've enjoyed this conversation, do share it. The more people we can get on board thinking about climate change mahi, the better our future will look. Kōpapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge. Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott-Murray and Sally Owen. It was edited and produced by Kirsten Johnston at Popsock Media. Studio recordings and mixing was by Will Saunders and Steve Burridge. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challenges Pautikanga Ruya Apirahama and his brother Rania and comes from the album Whare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. To learn more about the Deep South Challenge, te kōmata o te tonga, head to deepsouthchallenge.co.nz. Kōmāni Dunlop tēnei. Thank you for listening. Kia te māori. Hei kona.